following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, we're in Ephesians, in the series uh, in Ephesians, and uh, really just still getting underway with that. We're just halfway through the first chapter of Ephesians, so if you're finding your way there, it's just after Galatians, uh, and then just before Philippians. So uh, it's, it's this reasonably small book in the Bible written by Paul, uh, this man named Paul, Jewish man named Paul, and uh, it's a letter, Ephesians is a letter that he wrote, and of course when Paul wrote Ephesians, he wasn't writing the Bible. He wasn't writing the Bible. He was, writing, he was writing a letter to his friends. So he didn't think this was the Bible. He was just writing like you'd write a letter to your friends. It's become the Bible. It's become part of our Bible and for good reason. But this is a letter. And so you've got to read it like a letter uh, that he's writing to his friends in what is now Turkey uh, and a whole collection of churches there. And he's encouraging them and he's opening up to them a vast picture of the good news, the gospel. And the riches of what God has given us. And if you were here last week, we, we walked through the first passage in the body of the letter, which is verse uh, 3 to about verse uh, 12, 14. And Paul just unfolds all the riches, the spiritual blessings that God has given us in our lives, one after another. And he just goes through it like he's laying out this huge feast for us. And he talks about how God uh, blessed us and he chose us and he predestined us and he bestowed his favor upon us and he lavished his grace upon us and he made known to us all these incredible verbs that speak of God's work in our lives, past and present and future. And he just lays it out like this rich banquet there for us all to feast on. And so we, we, we feasted on all that last week. And hopefully you're having a chance to go back and read some of this for yourself and, uh, and, and get, because we can only deal with so much of it here on Sunday mornings. And I'm trying to wrap my arms around this and, and bring as much of it to you as I can, but we're necessarily being selective uh, with this. And so as much as you can be reading these passages for yourselves, and God will continually show you new things from his word as you do that. But the great thing with Ephesians is the good stuff just keeps coming. So now we're into uh, the next passage, halfway through chapter 1, and it's just another glorious uh, vision of what life in Christ looks like. Just another great passage to feast on. So uh, this is where we're going to be this morning, and Christy Staveley is going to come and read this passage for us. So thank you, Christy. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One of the great uh, Christian authors of the 20th century 
was a guy named J.I. Packer. Uh, he taught at Regent College, actually, just a name drop there for you, but a long time before I was there. He, he mainly taught in the 80s and 90s, but uh, his, his most well-known, well-loved book is this one. It's called Knowing God, simple title, Knowing God, and uh, it's, it was written back in the 70s, but it's become a, a real classic and still in print today, still selling a lot of copies, uh, because I think it taps into something that, that people feel and a desire that people have to know God. Let me just read you a little extract from this book. In this analytical and technological age, there is no shortage of books on the church bookstalls or sermons from pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, and generally how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. Yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. We need to face ourselves more sharply with the difference between knowing God and merely knowing about him. He's putting his finger on something, isn't he? It, it hits a nerve. It resonates with us. And maybe what he's saying is even more relevant today than it was back in the 1970s because we live in an even more analytical age today, an even more technological age today. And we've got almost limitless information at our fingertips about almost anything that we want, including knowledge about God and faith, and the Bible, and scripture, and the Christian life, and so on. I mean, we've just got everything that we want. We can know about God all we want. I mean, if you, if you don't like today's message, then you can listen to another one on your way home, easily. Uh, if you don't like that one, you can listen to another one in the morning, uh, in your car, on the way to work. You can just keep on going. Uh, you can get your favorite Christian teacher to uh, drop a daily devotional into your inbox, so it's there on your laptop, Every morning, as soon as you wake up, you can have Bible verses pop up in your Facebook feed every morning, so you're encouraged by Scripture. You can have inspirational quotes about faith uh, sent straight to your phone, so it's the first thing you look at in the morning. We've got all kinds of resources and teachings and education available to us so that we can know more about God and be encouraged more about God. And a lot of those things are good. That, that's helpful stuff. That's useful. That's encouraging. But you can have all that. You can have all the inspirational quotes and the Bible verses and the daily devotionals you want and still not know God. Is that right? You can have all this information. You can know a lot about God and still, underneath it all, not really know God. I think this is a huge problem and a very common situation, as much today as it was in, in J.I. Packer's day in the 1970s. I think we've got a lot of Christians in this space who know about God, and, and maybe this is you, and you've got the, you, you believe in God, you know, and you, you believe in Jesus, and you believe all the right things, and you've got the right answers to the right questions, and, you, and you've got your theology right, and you've got the beliefs right, and you've got the doctrines right, but you don't truly know the living God. You know about him, but you don't really know him. Or if you do know him, you don't know him much. You don't know him well. It's a problem in our day. It was a problem in J.I. Packer's day. It was a problem back in the first century. In Paul's day, there were a lot of people. And, and this is only a few decades, a couple of decades after Jesus had lived. And yet you've, you've got then a lot of people who knew about God. They had this kind of head knowledge about God, a cerebral relationship with God, but not a living, personal vital, life-giving relationship with God. And I think that's why Paul writes this passage. And that's why he focuses in this specific part of Scripture on those who don't truly know God or don't know Him well. Because what he does is, 
If you recall from last week, Paul has painted this amazing picture of salvation. Like he's just told us the story. He's told us this unbelievable story of all God has done and is doing and is yet to do. He's unfolded the plan of the ages to us. He's set it out there. And now what he does in this passage is he turns to the specific believers that he's writing to. So before this, it's been very broad, but now he turns to the Ephesians, so to speak. He's not literally with them, but he turns to them, as it were, and he addresses them. He addresses these specific believers. And he turns from praying toward God to praying for them, quite specifically. From praising God to praying for the believers. From blessing God to blessing these believers, and, and really praying into their lives and into their situations. And at the heart of this prayer, the verse I think that really unlocks the whole thing is in verse 17. This is the heart of what Paul prays for them. He says, I keep asking, this is I keep asking God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's it. That's the heart of it. Three words, right? Unlock the whole. There's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of glorious imagery and, and language, but that's the heart of it. Three words. If you want to underline it, if you're an underliner of the Bible, it's okay. It's not sacrilegious. You can do that. Underline those three words. Know him better. That's what Paul's praying. He's saying, I've told you the whole story now. I've given you all the theology, but now I want you to know him better. I want you to know him. I don't just want you to know about him. I don't just want you to know this big story. I want you to know all the doctrine. I want you to know the living God who's at the heart of the story. It's not just about knowing a story. It's about knowing the person of Jesus who makes sense of the whole story. And I think if Paul was here or if Paul was writing to us today, he would pray the same thing for us. And he would say, Shaw Community Church, I want you to know him better. I want you to know him. That's really what it all comes down to. You have all the, all the information in the world, all the knowledge in the world. But really, what God wants for us is that we would know him and know him better and better and better. Everything else comes from that. Everything else we can say, everything else in our Christian lives, it all flows out of that. Everything else as a Christian is a lived response to knowing God, knowing him personally, knowing him relationally, knowing him genuinely as we are known by him. That's it. It's very simple. And so what Paul does in this passage is he unpacks the idea of knowing God and what it means genuinely to know God. It's not difficult stuff. He, he describes it in beautiful language, but he uses these, these three phrases to describe what it means to know God. And so I just want to walk us through them. The heart of it is found in verse 18 and 19. That's the core of where we're going to be, and we'll draw on some other things around it. But these three little tightly packed phrases that open up three dimensions of what it means to know God, what it means to know Him personally. So I want us just to walk through this and just hopefully get our heads and our hearts around what it would look like for us to know God and to know Him better. So the first way of knowing God, the first aspect of knowing God, is in verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a beautiful phrase. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You see how he's going for the heart, not just the mind? That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In order that you may know, here's the first one, the hope to which he has called you. The first way of knowing God is to know the hope of his calling. 
The word calling, uh, the Greek word there, it, it could also be translated summons, to summon or to call someone. Uh, in the ancient world, you could be summoned in a, in a variety of contexts. The word was used in a variety of ways. You could be summoned to court. Uh, you could be summoned to, to a meeting. You could be summoned to a feast. It was an invitation, uh, sometimes a mandatory summons. You will be, you are required to be there. But the word takes on a particular meaning because it's used, or the Hebrew equivalent is used in the Old Testament, of God calling Israel, God calling his people to himself. So let me just read you one verse. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 43, this is God speaking, Isaiah 43. But now, this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you. Do you hear that? I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Such a beautiful verse. And God is saying to Israel, out of all the nations, Israel, I've summoned you. Not because you're better, not because you're stronger, but just simply out of my good pleasure, I have summoned you to myself and you are mine. I've redeemed you. I've created you. And now I've summoned you. You're going to be my people. You're going to know me. In a particular way, in a way that none of the other nations know me. You're going to have a privileged, special relationship with me. You will be my own people. You will be my own possession. This is what God is saying to Israel. So now, when we get to the New Testament and we come across this word, and we read in, in our Bibles that we are called, and we read that, that God is calling us, what we should do is connect this back to the story that we've heard in the Old Testament. The story of God calling Israel. And we should hear God saying to us the same words that he is saying to Israel. I have called you. He's saying to us. He turns to you today and he says, I know you and I have created you and I have formed you and now I summon you. I summon you to myself. That's the calling of God in our lives, that he summons us to himself. He said, I don't just summon you to, to know more about me. I don't just summon you into this kind of business-like relationship, God says, I, I summon you, I call you to know me. I call, you are mine. I belong to you, you belong to me. I want you to know me. I want you to be my own possession, my son, my daughter. God says to you today, I want to have the same kind of relationship with you that a child has with their parent. I want to have the same kind of bond with you. This is not like a business relationship. This is not some transactional relationship. God said, I want you to have the same kind of knowing of me that a child has, a newborn child, when they look into the face of their mother and they see there who they are. And their whole world makes sense because they see the face of their mother. That's what gives them meaning. It's what gives their whole life meaning. It's the reference point for everything else that they, that they know. They see their own identity. They see how loved they are. They see how valued they are. They see how cherished they are right there in the face of their mother. And God says, I'm, I'm turning my face towards you. And I love you. And I'm, I'm summoning you. I'm calling you into that kind of connection. I'm calling you into that kind of intimacy. I'm calling you into that kind of relationship with me. This is not head knowledge. This is not just more information. This is not just more Bible study. God says, I want you to know me in a, in a way that's real, like really real. I want you to know me. That's the calling. That's the calling of God on our lives, not just as a group, not just as a nameless sea of faces, but you personally. God summons you by name, individually and personally. Someone who I think knew a lot about this calling of God on their life was a man named Henry Nowen. 
He wrote a book called The Life of the Beloved. And in that, he says this. He says, I hear at my center words that say, I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with the care more intimate than a mother for her child. I have counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. Wherever you rest, I will keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all of your hunger and drink that will quench all of your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, as I know you as my own. You belong to me. Powerful words, hey? They go to the core of your being, don't they? And Henry Nouwen wrote those words for a friend of his named Fred, who came to it. Fred wasn't a Christian. He was a secular journalist, and he came to his friend Henry one day, and he said, Henry, could you write something for me and my non-Christian friends about the spiritual life, about the Christian life, and about what it means to know God, what it means to have a relationship with God? He wanted to know. And so Henry Nouwen wrote this this piece of, of writing that he gave to Fred, which has now become the book. And that uh, is an extract from what he wrote to Fred. And then he gave it to Fred, and Fred gave it to his friends, and they all had a read of it. And at the end of the book, Henry Nouwen includes this, this final little chapter where he talks about Fred's response to what he wrote. And he says, Fred came back to him after reading this and passing it around to all his friends. Fred came back to him, and he said, look, thanks, Henry, for everything that you've written here. But to be honest... It didn't really touch me. It, it didn't really connect with me. Uh, it didn't really stir us. And I think you don't realize just how secular we really are. That was his response. And Henry now includes that in the book. I was quite surprised to read it. Like, I think if someone responded that way to me, I'd keep it out of the book, you know. But this humbling admission at the end, like, this is how... Fred responded, and, and, and Henry Nouwen kind of leaves the book with his own sense of wondering how he had not connected with Fred's deepest longings and, and yearnings. Uh, and I was surprised because I find that quote so moving and so powerful. But I guess it just shows you everyone's got their own response. Everyone's got their own choice to make. You know, God's not, God's not going to force this on you. He's not going to pressure you to know him. Uh, every one of us have this calling. God's called every one of us. But, but God's not going to just make it happen for you. He's not going to shove you into it. He turns to you and he says, I invite you. I invite you to know me. But you've got to respond to this. You've got a choice. And if you want to just stay in that space of just knowing about me, then you are able to do that. God gives you the dignity of responsibility. And if you want to just stay in that space and you want to just know about God, or if you want to stay in that space of not knowing even about God and having nothing to do with God, God allows you to stay in that space as well. He allows you to be where you want to be. If you just want to stay in the shallow waters of just kind of knowing a bit of God and knowing Him a little and just kind of having that shallow relationship, that superficial relationship with God, God says, all right, if you want to do it's not just going to happen by default. You can't assume that just by doing nothing, you will naturally grow into knowing God better. No, no, the drift will be the other way. The drift will always be the other way because of the influence of everything around you pulling you the other way. So don't be naive. But God says, if you want to walk out of the shallow waters and into the deep, 
If you want to really know me, then I'm ready. I'm waiting. I'm here. And I want to know you. And I want you to know me. And I want to have that connection with you. But it's your call. It's up to you. And so it takes this response on our part. It takes us turning to God and saying yes to his calling. It's not this inevitable thing. It takes us from the depth of our being saying, God, I really want this. God, I, I want, I'm sick of just mucking around with this. I'm sick of just being in the shallows and paddling around in the shallows. I want the deep things. I want to know you deeply. I want to know your grace more deeply in my life. I want to know your spirit more deeply in my life. I want to know your word more deeply. I want to know you, God, better than I do today. I want to know you more. Anyone, does anyone have that desire? Does anyone sense that? Is there, is there any kind of hunger for this? This is the hunger that God gives to us to know him. But if you don't have it and you don't want it, God allows you to stay right where you are. He calls us. But every one of us has got to decide how we respond to that. This is the first way that we know God is by knowing the hope of his calling and responding to that calling in our lives. And then Paul gives us the second way of knowing God. Also in verse 18, let me read it again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then here's the second one. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, this is fascinating. We, we talked, do you remember some of you last week, we talked about inheritance because that word cropped up earlier on. It crops up back in verse 14 where Paul talks about our inheritance and the way the Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Do you remember this? The Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, like a down payment, first installation of what is yet to come, our inheritance and the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth. That's our inheritance. But notice that here in verse 18, Paul is not talking about our inheritance. Look at the words closely. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance. Whose inheritance is Paul talking about? God's inheritance, right? At this point, his focus is not on your inheritance. It's about God and his inheritance. It's a strange thought because we're more used to thinking about our inheritance because we're self-centered people and what I'm going to get in, in the new heavens and the new earth and how fantastic it's going to be for me. But Paul says, hang on a minute. God's also got an inheritance. God gets an inheritance. And so what is that? What is God's inheritance? Well, one guy thought that he knew exactly what God's inheritance was, and he took this verse a little bit too literally. There was a guy in 1968 in New Hampshire, and he died, and in his, in his will, he had established a trust, and he left 26,000 pounds in this trust. And the sole beneficiary of the trust was Jesus Christ. So he named Jesus as the beneficiary to his will, and Jesus gets 26,000 pounds. I'm sure he's very grateful for that. And so this was the idea was, I think, that uh, when Jesus returns, he's going to have 26,000 pounds to start his kingdom, which would be a great help in getting the kingdom of God established on earth, I'm sure. Uh, but there was a proviso in the will that Jesus had to return within 80 years of this man's death, or else, or else the 26,000 pounds goes to the government. So that was 1968. What are we now? Just over, over 50 years on, you know, Jesus has only got another 29 years to get back here or else he is going to forfeit the 26,000 pounds. That's going to go to the British government. So I hope Jesus understands what's at stake. I hope he got the memo about this. He's got a big inheritance waiting for him. So somehow I don't think God is overly concerned about that money uh, because according to scripture, he's got something slightly better. 
He's got a better inheritance that he gets. Now have a look at what it is. The riches of his inheritance in his holy people. Now that's the same word. Do you remember when we started this series, we talked about the the holy people Paul Paul mentions in verse 1, and it can be translated as saints. We talked about how each of us are saints. If you belong to Jesus, you're a saint, not because you're saintly, but because you're a saint in Jesus Christ. It's the same word. It crops up here. Holy people, it can be translated saints. And so God's inheritance is in his holy people, which means God's inheritance is what? Us. It's us. God inherits us, his people, his saints, his church, his family. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty stunning thought when you just let it sink in. That in, in the end, and remember, God gets to choose his inheritance. So this is not like earthly inheritance where someone else decides what inheritance you're going to get. God gets to choose his own inheritance. He gets to choose exactly what he receives in the end, exactly what he gets in the end. And what God has chosen out of everything he could have chosen in all creation, God has chosen in the end, he gets you. In the end, what he receives is you. Come on. That's amazing. That in the end, God, what God is looking forward to right now is receiving you. In the end, as his inheritance, you are the greatest gift God could receive. Isn't that stunning? That you are that kind of treasure to God? That you are that valuable to him? That you are the riches? You are his treasure? You know, we can never think that we're unworthy or somehow unable to have this relationship with God when he has said things like this about us. You know, sometimes the biggest barrier to knowing God is we we just don't feel like God could ever possibly love me and I'm not worth knowing and why would God ever want a relationship with me? There's a promise here. There's a truth here that will just put an end to all of that. That if you can truly understand that you are God's inheritance, it will speak volumes to you of just how valued you are by this God, just how cherished you are by this God, just what he thinks of you, that you are his greatest treasure and the prize that he is looking forward to above all. Doesn't that stir your heart to know him just a little bit more? That that's how much he desires you. That's how much he loves you. In spite of yourself, he sees everything. He sees all your weaknesses. He sees all your failures and all your flaws. But this is the extraordinary love of God, that in spite of that, he says, I love you anyway, and I make you acceptable in Jesus Christ, and I've named you as my inheritance. I'm looking forward to receiving you as my prize in the new creation. It's incredible. In the end, we inherit the earth, but God inherits us. Unbelievable. That should do something in our hearts if we're awake to stir us towards knowing God just a little bit more. Okay, finally then, here's the final dimension. So Paul has talked about how how do do we know God? We know the hope of his calling. We know the riches of his inheritance. And then verse 19, here's the final way of knowing God and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The final way in which we can know God is to know the greatness of his power. And this is the one that Paul spends the most time unpacking. I mean, he goes on a roll on this one over the next several verses where he describes the power of God and what that looks like. He says uh, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So here's what Paul is saying. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that was... The greatest demonstration 
of God's power in history. When, when he raised Jesus from the dead, the greatest, uh, greater than when he created the world, greater than when he parted the Red Sea, greater than when he appeared on Mount Sinai, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was the single greatest demonstration of the power of God in history. Why? Because he wasn't just raising one man from the dead. It's not like Lazarus. Because when Jesus walked out of the tomb, this was the power of God overcoming death itself. This wasn't just resurrecting a corpse. This was the power of God defeating death. This was the power of God defeating hell. The power of God defeating Satan. The power of God defeating every demonic power and authority and principality that exists. This is the power of God overcoming all things and establishing his kingdom, his new creation on earth, right in the midst of the present one, by the way, and establishing Jesus as Lord of all, over all things, and then securing Christ's future reign over all things when everything will be under his feet and he will rule directly, fully, comprehensively over the entire new creation. That's the power of God. So here's the thing. Now Paul turns to you and he says, just picture this. All of that power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power of that Christ is now exercising in reigning and ruling over all things. He turns to us ordinary Christians, ordinary believers, living ordinary lives, just going through our daily lives. He turns to you and he says, all of that power is yours. All of it. Not some of it, every single part of it. Now all of that great power is available to you who believe. His incomparably great power to us who believe. Even though we're just kind of living these normal lives, we're just doing normal stuff. We're just going to work and raising kids and dealing with stuff and paying bills and fixing broken cars and just eating, sleeping, talking, living. You know, we're just doing stuff. And yet Paul is saying, no, no, all the power of heaven is available to you at every moment of your mortal existence. Because you have within you the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He's not just the feel-good spirit that gives you little warm fuzzies in church when you're singing songs. Oh no. This is the Spirit. This is the power of God who raised and resurrected Jesus physically, bodily, from the earth. So if that power is available to us in the present, how are we not tapping into it? How are we not accessing that power? If, you, if you're struggling with something this morning, we're all battling with something. If you're struggling with something, you're struggling with an addiction. You're struggling with an addiction to alcohol, with an addiction to gambling, with an addiction to pornography. And you feel like these things have got their claws into your life so that the harder you try to break free, the stronger that grip gets on you. The harder you try, the harder it is to break free. And, and, you, and you feel so hopeless and you feel so helpless in that. You feel so powerless in that. And God says, if you ask me, I will release the same power that raised Jesus from the dead into your life. I will release into your situation. I will release into, 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 your, into that battle the same power, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It doesn't mean it's an instant solution and a quick fix, but God says, just ask me. Just would you, would you turn to me and ask me and the power of heaven will be released into your life to bring freedom, to bring healing, to bring renewal, to bring about health, to bring about a new future in your life. God says, just ask me. You may be struggling in your marriage and maybe, maybe you're here as a couple this morning. Maybe just one of you is here. And your marriage is under real strain and it's in real crisis. 
and you're not sure if you're going to make it. And you feel like, man, you know, we, this is just, we are, we're just going to do our last hope, our last chance. I don't know whether we're going to make it. And God says to you, just ask me, and I will pour into your marriage the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I, that power is here. It is available to you. God says, just ask me, and I will pour that power. I will release that power into your marriage doesn't mean it's going to be suddenly all better, but it means you can begin in the power of the Spirit to move towards oneness and to move towards healing. Of course, you don't have the power in yourself to do these things. That's not the point. But God says, ask me, and I will give you all the power you need. That's why Scripture says, Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's already given us all the power we need. You may be struggling with something this morning that's causing you incredible fear. And you just feel your anxiety levels rise just thinking about it and you are stressed out by it and you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got the, the shallow breathing and the heart palpitations and everything and you, this thing is just causing such fear and worry for you. You're just constantly worrying about it. And God would say to you this morning, ask me. Would you just ask me? And I have all the power of heaven, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I want to release that power into your life. I want to release that power into your situation. I want to release that power into the circumstances that you're worrying about. Just, just ask me, would you turn this over to me? Would you come to me? Would you turn towards me and not try and just battle this thing out on your own? Would you just ask me? All the power you need is right here. But so often we just don't ask. And so we don't receive. God says, I've got all the power you need. That doesn't mean it's going to be a quick fix. This is not some power that you can bend to your own whim. It's not some power. It's not like rub the bottle three times and genie appears, you get whatever you want. It's not that kind of power. This is ultimately God's power, and it's used for his purposes and for his will. But I can guarantee you that every time you ask God, he will release his power into your situation. You may not see exactly how his power works. You may never see exactly how his power is working. And it may not do exactly what you want it to do in the time frame that you want it to do it. It's not this quick fix, instant solution. But God says, you ask me. And every time you pray, every time you turn to me, I will respond. Every time you ask me, I will release my power into your life, into your heart, into your mind into your situation, into your circumstances, I will be working. You can trust me, says the Lord on this. I am with you. I am for you and not against you. I have all the power you need. Every time we ask, God will release that power afresh into your situation. I love the story that John Ortberg tells of a time that he and some friends were walking along Newport Beach in California. And they walked past this bar and there was a fight going on in the bar and it just spilled out onto the streets. These three guys were beating up this one other guy. And uh, this, this poor guy was already pretty badly bruised and bleeding pretty profusely. And John Ortberg and his friends felt like they had to do something about this. And so they went over and they're trying to pull these guys off the other guy and convince them to stop attacking him and nothing was really working. And then he says, these, suddenly these three guys, the attackers, they looked up and this look of fear came over their eyes, their faces. And they started to back off. They let this guy go. They started to kind of slink away, and then they ran off. And for a minute, John Ortberg felt pretty good about himself. <laughs> felt pretty impressive. And then he looked behind him, 
And he saw just standing there the biggest, muscliest guy he had ever seen in his life. Just standing there with his arms folded. Didn't say anything, didn't need to. Just stood like he was wanting these guys to take him on, you know, like he was looking for them to take him on. And these guys got one look at that guy and took off. It's not because they saw John Ortberg, he's not a very intimidating guy. It's because they took one look at this guy and took off. And, you know, we have one standing behind us at every moment of the day who is far greater than that guy. You have one standing behind you every moment of the day who is the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of Jesus at whose name every demon trembles. That's who you have as your protector, your defender, your redeemer, your friend. That's who you have fighting your battles for you. And we've just got to believe that the power of God, the Bible says the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit within you. We've got to believe that power is greater than whatever you are fighting this morning. Whatever it is you're fighting, the power of God is greater than that. It is greater than your anxieties. It's greater than, than your confusion and your uncertainty about the future. It's greater than that complex problem that you can't think your way through and you can't figure your way out of. The power of God is greater than that. It's greater than the, the situation, the un, insurmountable odds that seem to be confronting you. The power of God is greater than that. It's greater than your despair. It's greater than your grief. It's greater than your addiction. It's greater than your relationship problems. It's greater than your anger. It's greater than your negative self-esteem. It's greater than your own hatred of yourself, some of you. The power of God is greater. And God says to you, just ask me. Turn to me, open your heart and ask me. And I will release the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ into your life. Just ask me. This is one of the central ways in which we know God is knowing his power. Knowing his power in our lives. We don't take hold of it in a selfish, self-centered way. But we access all the power of heaven and we invite God into our lives, into our situations as we turn them over to him and we begin to experience his healing, life-giving, redeeming, freeing power in our lives. We know God by knowing the greatness of his power. So I don't know. I don't know where you're at this morning and you, you may be here and maybe you've been coming to church a long time. Maybe you've been coming to church for decades. Maybe you were christened in the church or baptized in the church, confirmed in the church. And you, maybe you serve in the church or you serve in the community. And, and you may know how to go through all the motions of the Christian life. And you might read your Bible and you might pray and you might read some Christian books maybe. You might come and listen to sermons. You might even give money to the church or be in a life group or whatever. But maybe today, maybe for the first time, there's just this moment of realization for you that when you strip all that away, that underneath it all, you just don't know God. And, and maybe you've convinced yourself you do. Maybe you've convinced your husband and wife or wife that you do. Maybe you've convinced everyone else that, that you do. But really, in your heart of hearts, if you're honest with yourself this morning, you, you recognize, you know, I, I actually just don't know God. Not in the way Paul describes not in the way Paul prays for the Ephesians. I've got some kind of intellectual comprehension, but I don't know him. And the good news is that God 
invites you to know him, that you can know him today. It's as simple as that. There's nothing more that needs to be done. There's not 10 hoops to jump through. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done. And he just says to you, if you don't know me, then I invite you to to come today. He's already summoned you. He's already called you. And he says, if you want to know me, I'm here. If you want to know me, I'm available. I'm ready. I'm willing. The next move is up to you. And if you want to know Jesus today, I, I invite you to come. I invite you to know him. Jesus invites you to come to him, to turn your heart towards him, turn your life over to him and say, God, you know, I've, I've kidded myself for a long time, but I want to know you today. I don't just want to stay with knowledge about you. That's just not, it's not going to do it anymore. I want to know you deeply, truly, personally today. If that's you, Jesus invites you to come to him, open your heart to him, begin a conversation with him today. And you might be here, here's the other category, you might be here and you might know God, As you read this passage and you listen to God's word, there's something in you that wants to know him better. Is that true for some of you? That there's something, when you listen to this this prayer that Paul prayed, there's something that's just stirred in you and you feel like, you know, I I do know God, but I just want to know him better. I want to know him more. I I just feel like I've got, got the shallow, I'm still in the shallow end. I want to get into the deep end. And maybe you know God and you, and you think, man, I, I just know him the same today as I knew him five years ago, as I knew him 10 years ago, as I knew him 20 years. Nothing's changed for me. And you just plateaued in your relationship with God. You just stagnated in your spiritual life and in your spiritual growth. And if that's you today, then God says, I, I invite you to come to me. I, wa- I want you to know me more. He invites you and he, and he says, I'll take you by the hand and I'll lead you into a deeper relationship with me and I will help you know me better. Not just know more about me. There's a place for that but to know me deeply and truly. And I'm going to help you know me better and better and better over the course of your life. I'm going to lead you into deeper things so that you learn to hear my voice better. Over all the other voices that are clamoring for your attention, God says, I'm going to teach you to hear my voice. I'm going to teach you to be nourished by my word more and more. I'm going to teach you to value this relationship that we have more than any other relationship in your life. I'm going to teach you to see signs of my presence where you couldn't see anything before. I'm going to open your eyes so you start to see where I'm already at work in your life, in your relationships around you. I'm going to do all these things, God says, but I want you to know me. I want you to come to me. I want you to start with a willing heart that is open and embracing of God's invitation. And so if that's you this morning, God invites you to come to He loves you. He has created you. He has formed you. He has called you. He's summoned you by name. He says, you are mine. And all he wants is for you to know him. Let's pray. Just in in the quietness of these couple of moments, if if God is stirring your heart this morning and, and maybe the Holy Spirit is nudging you and you're not quite sure what all that means, but you just got a sense that God is, is saying something to you this morning, is nudging you towards him. I just want to pray and try and put some words around this and try and express maybe something of what you're feeling. And I just invite you to pray along with me in your heart and in your own life and, and just connect with and make, make this your own prayer. Lord Jesus, I desire to know you. I desire to know you. And God, I know bits and pieces about you. 
And maybe I thought I knew you better than I do, but I see this morning, Lord, as you, as you shine the spotlight into my heart, I see that I don't know you as you want me to know you. And I just want to say to you simply this morning, Lord Jesus, from the depth of my heart, I want to know you. I want to say yes to you, God, without even knowing exactly what that means, without even knowing exactly where that's going to lead me and what that's all going to involve. But I just say yes God, yes, I want to know you. Yes, God, I invite you into my life afresh. Maybe you've invited God into your life before, but God, God, we just I, I invite you into my heart afresh this morning. I want to know you again. I want to be born again. Or maybe I want to be born again again. Lord, I want to be renewed by you. I want you to take me deeper. I want to grow. I want to know you personally. I want that relationship with you that the newborn baby has with her mother. Father, would you draw me that close? And God, I know that we're going to walk out of here and we're going to go back to busy and complex and often very secular lives. But I just pray that the seeds you have planted here among us this morning would not be lost. I just want to pray the words you've spoken over our life this morning would not be shouted out by all the voices that are going to start yelling at us as soon as we leave here this morning. I pray that what you've done in the hearts of people here this morning, you would now water and protect it and preserve it and grow it, Father, and continue the work that you've started here this morning. I thank you that you love your people. I thank you that you love your church. I thank you that you love each one of us uniquely and individually. Lord, would you just speak your words of grace, your words of value, your words of affirmation over our lives afresh as you invite us to know you in new ways fresh ways. Thank you, Jesus, for your invitation. We respond to you this morning. We respond to you from our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.